When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's most American podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimrose. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have a professor of law at Deakin University. She's done a PhD from University of Melbourne with a focus in property and land law. Seems like climate is a main interest as well as the impact on Indigenous communities. So let's welcome to the show, Samantha Hepburn. How are you, Samantha? Very well. Oh, I should say Dr. Samantha Hepburn. Sorry, that's my... And <laughs> <laughs> is fine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I already said you've got a PhD, and then but, uh, you can tell I was reading the bio and skip that, yes. But yeah, <laughs> how are you? Very well, very well. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, I'm very excited. I've had a, someone with a focus in law before, so I might have a bunch of dumb questions. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> can... please, look. No, please ask. I, I, and no question is dumb. I always say that to my students, you know, because often you just, particularly in lockdown, you just get complete silence. And so... Um, it's good to get questions because at least you know where where you where you, where everyone's coming from. That's true, actually. Yeah, because I guess if, in lockdown, like if you're doing it online, you can't even like do the whole like stare at the person so they feel pressured to that's say right. something. They can just half ignore the whole thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's, all that's... of those kind of you know human um, interactions are, are gone, really, and and sometimes yeah. you freeze in weird positions. So, <laughs> oh, really? you do have someone online, but um, yeah, it's been a sort of. Sh- I suppose quite steep learning curve um, teaching online. Yeah, I could imagine. I know it's. Don't know if it's going to be going anywhere much anytime soon. No, that's right. So unpredictable. Yeah, uh, but uh, so yes, you've got you got interest in energy, and uh, but it seems like you were trying to toss up between three books, but you've got one that you've picked as your favorite. So let's kind of start there, and then we'll kind of go out into everything else as we go. So uh, your book of choice for today. Uh, is um, Arundhati Roy's uh, The God of Small Things. Um, that's the one that I've chosen. Um, but it was a bit of a tricky one because, um, you know, I really, really loved uh, The the Overstory by, by Richard Powers as well. But but anyway, that, that finally came back. W- and, and I also loved the other one that I chose, which was the Christopher Stone's essay on um, Should Trees Have Standing? Which is such a beautiful piece, written in 1972. But anyway, all of that. Oh wow! Yes, back then. I did, yeah, way back then, and um, I was sort of going to start with that, but then I just thought, look, actually, I think from a human point of view, and and human points of view, really important right now because you know we're all in lockdown, we all really need each other, and um, you know we've got a global pandemic going on. I really love some of the um, some of the ideas that that Roy explores. Um, obviously, she she's looking at um, the capacity for for humans to to hurt each other and to um, set up these you know hierarchies uh, that that mean nothing really mean no, nothing from the point of view of innocence and you know um, if if we could deconstruct some of that a lot of the, a lot of the problems um, might be removed because 
um, we're seeing that we have to do that during COVID anyway, you know, trying to reach out to people a little bit more and removing preconceived ideas and, and um, you know, being more human to each other. So it's a very, very beautiful book. It's a very sad book. It's looking at the caste system and the love laws in India um, and um, the treatment of a low-caste um, servant who was very kind to two young girls and really his, ultimately what happens to him pervades their whole life, you know. And I think it's kind of got reflections for how we've treated Indigenous people, definitely, um, and the, you know how that kind of reverberates um, through mm. generations. So I guess uh, to to because it's funny I haven't read uh, the God of Small Things, but uh, and and the descriptions online seem to be rather vague, so I can't do more than give a vague very brief description but it sounds like yeah essentially a focus on these kids um their friendship and then the impact of these love laws which you might have to explain to me what exactly that is but how it impacts them um within the community is that a fair enough that's exactly very brief family and um i mean the love laws are basically um you know you can't marry into caste um i'm certainly not an expert on this um but but there are all these strong rules about what you can and can't do in terms of your interactions with people. Um, and these are, you know, well-established, um, but the the horror of it in terms of, of um, seeing through the, the eyes of, of young children, you know, who, who mm. don't understand any of that and just look at it as being a person that was kind and, and nice to them and, you know, couldn't, couldn't really appreciate the impact that... Um, those kind of really well-established social constructions have and and mm. how could we make some parallels and I mean there are sort of just generally just that general feeling of brutality and and um, racism and discrimination and I mean it's been endemic in in Australian law um, you know since colonization because mm. well we know that that, that the land framework uh, the inherited land framework, is a framework which assumes that nobody existed, that 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 when we came, nobody existed, and and even if there was somebody that existed, they were so barbarous in their culture that they didn't deserve to have legal recognition. So most of the early cases, land law cases in Australian history, um, don't even talk about um, Indigenous people, so they don't even give. Indigenous people, the dignity of identity. And I suppose that sort of indignity and lack of respect is something that pervades the God of small things as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's because when you mentioned the Indigenous communities, I, it just from my, again, very brief reading, it didn't seem to directly reflect that. But you're saying just in terms of almost artificial laws because creating these issues exactly, and exactly. outlooks on on people. Yeah, exactly. So I guess I guess I want to understand a bit more about that because that's something which uh, this might be going philosophical with law. Um how much a law will mold what people think and how much it is just a reflection of what people think. So it's so interesting because you know you just talk about artificially created laws. I mean laws are supposed to reflect the the type of society in which we live. And so in that sense they're supposed to be dynamic and evolve as we evolve. Um, but obviously that doesn't happen. You know, many laws are outdated and archaic. And indeed, if we look at um, Terra Nullius and, and the land laws that we inherited, they didn't reflect Australian culture because, or, or, or Australian society because we never had a feudal framework. We didn't have 
the sort of estate-based system that existed in England for, for generations, we had a new new world, you know, with with Indigenous people living here and, you know, vast tracts of land, much of it at that time, you know, really harsh and, um, you know, scrub-like and difficult. And so what really we needed to do was to develop a more intuitive um, Australia-based land system, but we didn't do that. We just tried to, I think, try to adapt uh, a feudal system and a feudal mentality to a land system that and, and, and a so, so to a physical framework that um, you know basically um, really didn't I suppose it never really worked effectively um, and then we tried to justify that by saying oh well you know under British imperial law nobody lives here nobody exists these people shouldn't be treated as people and so therefore we can theoretically kind of utilize these feudal laws and and, and apply them and 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 that we're still dealing with the fallout from that i mean feudal if you can believe it we still have a feudal system in australia so so fictionally if you own a property fictionally the crown is still the ultimate owner and so you know, go figure. As in, like, there's a little part of a <laughs> the constitution or something which says that. That, that. Well, well, that's 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 our land system, George, and 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 so what that means is there's a couple of implications for that. First of all, that means that up until recently, if you died intestate, your land would go to the crown because it always belonged to the crown. For example, <laughs> um, and also, it of course, means that the crown can compulsorily acquire your land. But the other thing it means for Indigenous people is that. They obviously never had any relationship with our crown, and so any interest that that so native title, which is the sort of creation um, in 1992, has really kind of existed as this kind of weird subset of property law that's outside the mainframe, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm only showing my utter naivety with these things, but native law is that uh, native title is that for the areas which were just gifted back, gifted back. But I guess native like- title is is the it was the type of property interest that was recognised by Marbo, um, and basically what it says is, and here's here's the here's the kicker, right? First of all, <laughs> to get native title, there had to be no um, property right granted over the area. So, so in 1992, you can imagine that many areas, many of the good areas, obviously had property rights already granted to them. So, no native title. So, really, you were talking about internal areas that were quite arid and perhaps non-inhabitable in many ways. Uh, that was yeah. what was left. Then, in order to establish native title, because um, there are all these strict requirements. Indigenous people had to prove that they had a continuing connection with the land. So it's sort of like colonial formaldehyde, right? You had to prove that what you did at colonisation you're still doing to present day. Otherwise, we don't have this connection. So, uh, so if you don't have a connection, you can't get this title. It's very difficult to establish native title. Um, that, like, okay. And it, it, I've got so many questions already. <laughs> in, it, we've already veered wildly from the book, but that's okay because we can come back to it. you don't want to do property law. <laughs> well, I, I just it, – it's the kind of thing where I just find some of this because the details of it, it's always interesting. And, like you, and it does tie back to the book in terms of these artificial constructs and how much that reflects natural 
<laughs> human conditions rather than like whatever. So I guess a few things like firstly, to go take a step back, when you mentioned Terra Nullius is in that's how Australia was treated as this empty land. Are you saying that like when like Australia was strings find is when when in England uh, colonized America, was there a different legal framework for how they treated that? Or was that just before that? Love that because I have looked at that contrast. So that they in America basically um, also inherited the feudal system, but Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson abolished it, you know. So and then they adopted what what's called sort of technically as elodialism. And what that basically means is that if you own land, you're the ultimate owner. There's no overlord or no crown above you. Um, you own it all. So it's interesting um, how that treats like as in how that's reflected in the culture, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting. And exactly. And and then the sort of legal framework reflects that because you've got kind of a, a different texture, really, because you've got bills of rights and, you know, strong constitutional provisions and amendments um, protecting, you know, property rights. And also you've got um, it's very interesting in terms of the energy framework because resources that reside in the ground in it, it, for private landowners in America can be um, exploited, I mean, subject to some exceptions, and I'm being a bit general here, but can be exploited by landowners, whereas in Australia, if you, I mean, well, actually, I'll tell you where this plays out in, with coal seam gas. If you've got gas under your land, and let's say you're in a New South Wales hotspot, you don't own it, okay? So you have no control over what the state or the crown and right of the state does to exploit that resource. Which this has been the big issue. Lock the gate. Let stop them from coming in. But you can't because you don't own it. You own the land, but not the resource in the land because the feudal system allows the crown to take that resource away from you. Oh, that's just so interesting. Like, as in, just in terms of, because I, I do find uh, it's a topic that I find so massively fascinating is the impact of history on us today, like the long, the long tentacles of culture and how yeah. that impacts us. That's so such a good expression, the long tentacles <laughs> of culture, because that's exactly what happens with property. I mean, property is very old. I mean, a lot of it, you know, derived from, you know, Roman principles and, and Greek principles and, and assumptions about how we should set up society. Um, and then they've sort of been ingrained into sort of historical ways in which civilizations have been um, ordered and so feudalism itself is this, you know, bizarre framework, really, this idea that you have, you know, one person as the ultimate, you know, controller of all the land. And that really reflected a time frame when, you know, there were far fewer people um, and didn't have the industrialised societies that we have um, and certainly didn't have the sort of, let's call it, in some ways, ethical progression that we have, we have today. And and so the idea that we've still got it is just bizarre. I mean, to get, uh, the people who it benefits are the ones who make the laws, I guess. So exactly, Yeah, and it's very difficult <laughs> to get rid of it, right? Because if yeah, you wanted and to especially agree, when it's so, so broad. Republican debate, you want to get mm. rid of it, you'd have to effectively say, right, okay, Crown has no interest in, in land anymore. And that yeah. would be difficult. <laughs> I just go, just be a lot, just, just a lot of admin. It's a lot of admin, that's right. <laughs> so much admin. <laughs> um, okay, so the, uh, along the same lines, I guess, uh, and this, uh, it's just because, you, yeah, you're, you're providing an insight, a perspective, which I just don't have at all. Because, I mean, you're saying all this about how it's reflected in, like, these old attitudes and how they've maintained till now. But, like, 
I mean, yes, that is obviously the case, but at the same time, is there another way that it could be structured and still be a society where people own things and stuff? You know what I mean? Yes, that's what academics do. Like we've still got some utility. I realise that, you know, in a COVID <laughs> framework where we have no international law students, international students, not international law students, international students, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're um, being reduced in numbers and so on. But the whole idea mm. is that we come up with ideas and we kind of research them and workshop them and think about, you know, alternative perspectives. And, and in, a, in a legal sense, what are the options for us? Plenty, plenty. I mean, first of all, I really don't think that there's any need to have a feudal system anymore, particularly because it effectively means that estates that are derived from the Crown are up here and estates that are not, like native title, are way down here. So there's not parity in treatment and that's unfair. Okay, start with that. Secondly, I think that as we move towards a new future in terms of hopefully, well, our absolute imperative is to stay within two degrees. Um, and to stay within two degrees climate, for climate change, you mean? Yes, yeah, sorry, climate yeah, yeah. change. I'm going. I'm shifting. That's okay. That's a. <laughs> I'm shifting issues now, but um, it's still a land-based issue. Um, we need to make sure that the way in which we generate energy is sustainable. And you know, to date, um, the feudal system has kind of contributed to the problem because the crown has control of the fossil fuels right, because they can take them back because they have ultimate ownership, right. I don't want to get too complex here. Um, but what that's meant is, of course, that they're keeping on. I mean, there's, there's a gas-led recovery, George. Um, that's yeah. how we're going yeah. to get through COVID apparently. And um, that doesn't seem consistent with the fact that the International Energy Agency said that we can't have any more fossil fuel projects, you know, if we want to stay within two degrees. We can't open up any more fossil fuel. And so I'm wondering whether changing the mainframe, i.e. changing the, 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 the operators who, who controls um, these resources would help in terms of basically massively decelerating uh, fossil fuel generation. Is, is that a case where um, there's evidence of this in certain countries? Where that, oh, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, obviously I'm talking about Australia because Australia has a feudal system. But even in civil codes, you know, I can say that I think there's a little bit more progression there. But but still, it's, it's all about who controls the resource titles um, and, um, you know, who gives basically the green light to companies to go ahead and, um, and exploit. And, you know, my, my concern is that this isn't, necessarily going to stop it's highly politicized um and you know it's all very well for the international energy agency to say oh well we don't want any more fossil fuel projects but what invariably happens is that um you know the government says oh we need this for energy security oh my god the lights will turn out you won't have you know you won't have any energy and you won't have any jobs but of course you're not going to have any jobs or energy if we hit three degrees mm. and so you know that the, the there is no effective means of, of, of um, I think, controlling that political rhetoric. We're seeing a little bit with respect to climate litigation. Um, so you probably maybe read about the Sharma case where um, the Queensland Federal Court basically said, yep, you have a duty of care towards you, Minister, um, who are issuing these resource titles, have a duty of care towards um, young children because you are destroying their future. 
So that was very recent. Okay. That does sound like a bold it was precedent. Very bold. To yeah, it was very bold because <laughs> it's a duty of care. I mean, I don't want to get you too – you're getting you're getting totally, um, you know, immersed in law now, George. But I know. This is, this is a duty of dive. care yeah. is really – it's a high level of responsibility from a legal point of view. And um, so that was a very positive outcome. Our politicians and our regulators aren't really doing much. And, in fact, mm. it's exacerbating the problem by, you know, progressing – fossil fuel when there is clearly other alternatives right and like this is this is what i'm trying to like uh, uh go through my head and it might actually tie into the story uh even <laughs> let me try yeah, on this roundabout way to tie it together yeah, yeah. um considering I, I i only was able to get a very brief overview of the show but when you talk about um like artificial constructs and how these laws can impact groups of people and it's not it's separate to what the people are. It's like artificial, as you say. But like one thing I always think is interesting about the law, what it seems like, especially if you look at something like America and how its Supreme Court changes things, but obviously it's, that's the case in a lot of places, just they're the most well-publicized, yeah. is how much the law ultimately isn't um, – it's like people are like living off it and doing it. It's just like it's serving the interests of certain people and they can make it say whatever they want almost. Totally. So, it, yeah. so that's a part where I'm like – does it matter that much there's a feudal system or is it literally nothing to do with the actual issue, which is that the people who are looking at it can still make it? So even in the most utopian version of law, you still got the same issues essentially. Yeah, no, that's – you're right. They're very good points. Um, and and I almost don't know how, how to solve that, but, but I would say that it does matter. It does matter. Even though um, the same problems could evolve, whatever framework we have, the framework we've got is so out of touch. Um, And property is a very valuable asset. And by property, I'm talking about land and resources. You know, there's only a limited amount of it. We know that, um, you know, population is increasing. um, And as climate change accelerates, it'll be difficult for people to live in certain areas. So property is going to become more and more valuable. And resources in the ground can't be burned anymore to generate. They can't. And so... (sighs) Who has control of that is very important right now because we still have, there's still the slight hope that we could stay within two degrees. And to do that, the people that do have control of that have to be pretty much stopped, you know. <laughs> yeah. They're and, have and, to have you a... know, it is very frustrating because you end up think, thinking, what's the point? You know, I can't do anything. I feel cynical. But I always say to my students, you, it's it's war. You don't give up. You keep going. And whatever you can do, it, it might only be a small thing. It's a firebrand lecture. But <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> I, I, I think every day I think, oh, you are kidding me, right? Like uh, uh, one example, I just, just recently today was looking at the um, – uh, in Western Australia, they've got uh, a big Gorgon gas uh, project. And the reason they got the, the title, you know, the resource title and the approval from the environmental, um, uh, for the environmental approvals, is that they were supposed to be taking the carbon, liquefying it and putting it underground so they weren't emitting it, you know. And they were supposed to be doing that from 80% of the gas and it turns out for the last five years they haven't been doing hardly any of that has been going on and every year 
Chevron keeps saying, oh, you know, actually Chevron being the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in since oh, I think I think that there was, a, there was a study that came out that said 20 companies were the produced the most greenhouse gas emissions since 1894 and Chevron's one of the biggest. And, you know, they keep saying, oh, we've got design and integrity issues. We have to make sure that it works. And the problem is every time we give a dispensation, that's another year when emissions have gone out, they haven't gone under, that's, they haven't been sequestered, and we are making things worse. And so... It, and, and if they think they can get away with it, I, I just feel like that's what's happening. And- I mean, it's a classic, right? If you, it, can, This again goes into like, yeah, the flexibility of these artificial constructs because like they can just delay and delay just helps them. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And, and, and there, there are communication, knowledge, information, it's all really important, you know. I always say, think, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll try. You know, I really do try, but I don't know how effective it is sometimes. However, I feel like the most effective thing is that, you know, those the next generation that takes over might have a much greater understanding of what's going on. And it might be too late or it might not. Well, that's not. A, <laughs> I'm glad the show's going to – the episode's going to keep going because that would have been a great place to finish if we were finishing there. <laughs> well, look, I mean – No, no, it's it's like the, the urgency I think is real and um, the – I think the there's the, – the issue is that younger people now are aware of the issue, but the problem is that old people aren't dying anytime soon. Exactly. So, I know. Like, you're not going to see yeah, this change that's exactly happen. It. That's the, that's that it in a nutshell. And you know, one thing we can say: well, the universe works in mysterious ways. The one thing about COVID is that we, that emissions, global emissions, have dramatically reduced because we haven't had air travel, and you know, people are locked down, and they haven't been able to do what they've been used to doing, and um, that's been very beneficial for the environment in many areas. Obviously not for, for us. <laughs> well, not, you know, in terms of we wouldn't have wished a global pandemic for that to have occurred. But it's very interesting to make parallels and to say, well, you know, um, how come we can respond in some ways so rapidly to the profound um, dangers associated with a global pandemic but we can't do it for climate change because it's this mm. kind of we keep thinking oh it's this distant threat you know it hasn't hit us yet um, yeah i think uh if there's one thing the pandemic has definitely taught everyone it's that uh we never had a hope with climate change of getting half the people to believe it considering yeah, well, half of them right. don't even believe a covid's real yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> you never had a hope like what are you thinking they didn't even these like, <laughs> that's right that's right so, that's right when you think oh my gosh there's all these people out there who don't think covid's real how on yeah. the earth are we going to get them to think that, that climate change is real? When, when, and, and in fact, I was reading the other day that's, that, um, you know, people were going into hospital terribly ill with COVID, still not believing that it was real. Um, so, and, and that's very interesting for lawyers who are, you know, evidence-based, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> just thinking, wow. So yeah, you're absolutely right. How what hope have we got for the many that that 
think that climate change isn't happening and isn't real. Yeah, I think it's just a classic. You, you, you don't need everyone on board. So that's just, you just got to accept it. Not everyone's going to ever yeah. believe it. So, yeah. And move on from there. But uh, so I guess we should <laughs> go back to the book a little bit. Yeah, let's go back to the book. Even though I do want to talk even more about this, but um, so uh, but just quickly to give some grounding, uh, because this is still bookish, so we've got to be talking about the book. Um, the the uh, so with this book, because you've chosen this in reflection of the other, and it does seem like some of the others might be more in line with what you're kind of interested in right now. Well, but in this book, when did you first read it? Um, oh, I read it many years ago, and in fact, before I did my PhD, and um, I'm. I don't actually remember when it was published, but it was a long time ago. And I think it won the Booker Prize, so, you know, had all these um, um, awards. And I remember thinking, oh, that that this would be, you know how some books you read and you think, I know this is really good for me to read this, but um, I don't know that I can get past the first five pages. You know, I have to really push myself. And I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. Reading. High art. And yeah. High art, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, it's like, ugh. So I remember... Um, uh, thinking, oh, I hope this isn't one of those books, and it isn't. Like you, you're straight into it, you know, right from the beginning. And, and I think a lot of that is because it's through the eyes of these um, twin twin um, children that that it's, it's kind of a beautiful world that they see. And, and, and that probably also um, disarms you a bit because you think, oh, okay, these things are happening, but it doesn't feel as bad because I'm seeing it through the lens of, of, a, of, a, of what a child would see. But but then on the other hand, you think how awful it is as well because um, and and there are parts where um, you know they've grown up and they're looking back and remembering what happened and so that um, you know when they talk about the brutality and the relentless brutality towards people who are in a different caste, um, they're really and and to 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 you know these kind of constructed laws. Uh, which are artificial, artificial to the children. They look back and they see how, you know, what they've experienced has has affected them for their whole whole life. You know. Yeah. Um. And does it paint a picture? Like, I mean, my first thought: the fact that they're older does mean that this isn't always the case in the book, obviously. But like, obviously, whenever you hear something like this, the the, the classic of that genre of innocence looking at a deeper issue is obviously like I think to kill a mockingbird probably yeah, everyone yeah, knows. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, book, so yeah. it sounds like this might occupy the space a little bit, but also since they grow up, obviously you're going to be seeing a more, a deeper picture of it. Yeah. Um, does that mean that these characters are, are not always good guys? <laughs> like these central twin yeah, figures or are they always kind not, of presented as good? Presenting, I don't think, I think the, the genius of the book is, is not that it presents them as kind of, you know, good ethical humans, but just just basically um, presents it from their perspective as children, and then from their perspective looking back in terms of you know how how their innocence was shattered. I suppose really over time, and and um, and it does that really really effectively um, because they cannot, and and I suppose shows that they can't understand why there's this sudden shift towards this aggression and violence. Um, and it's always been there, but they've just been shielded from it. Um, mm. And um, they've not known that, you know, their friend Valutha was from a different caste and, you know, that they shouldn't be um, associating with this person and that this, there's all these rules that apply. If you are in a different type of human being, you can't do certain things. 
you know. I mean, these are rules that are, you know, clearly have been clearly established in if we make comparisons to Indigenous people, you know. I mean, land systems really um, were... Mm. Um, had similar type of effects. This is what I was thinking when I was doing it. I thought, gosh, you know, um, this whole idea that that because Indigenous people didn't form the type of society that that we regarded as civilization, they were treated as non-existent, and that justified the application of common law. That justified us taking land because there was no one here, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, the putting the, the the lawyer look at it, um, which yeah. is it, I mean, and that's interesting because like, uh, okay, because I feel like we're very close to going back down that rabbit hole, which I really want no, to. No, so no, before no, we no, do no, that no, quickly, no, like, I, but I, I do want to ask: um, was that why the book spoke to you when you first read it, or is that a new area that's? It spoke you? to me because at the time, because I did my um, doctorate at Melbourne Uni um, about twenty years ago. Um, and Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. And so about the time, I think, I'm pretty sure, I haven't got the time, my timing might be totally out, but it was a while ago that I did my doctorate and I think it was about the time either I was writing it or I'd just finished it when I read that book. And um, I've, it really struck me that there were, you know, just the foolishness, I mean, these kind of adherence to these, I mean, of the, this um, way of perceiving fellow human beings, you know, and the inhumanity of it. Um, right. And I don't know, I suppose that kind of gels with some of the stuff I've been reading in the other book. I know we're focusing on one book, but the overstory. No, no, we can talk, we can talk about the other one. So are you talking about the overstory now? or the Yeah, essay? I'm talking about the overstory because yeah. what I loved about that was just this kind of sense of these beautiful, gentle friends that we have uh, that that are with us. You know, there are. He, he talks about them through different stories, through different experiences that the people in the short stories have. But he talks about them 
um, you know, as being our common ancestors. And um, I just think that it's such a powerful thing. And, and I love the fact that he's a he, Richard Powers is a professor at Stanford University and um, apparently, and this might just be something that he said for the book, for the marketing of the book, but he, apparently he said he was, um, you know, in a forest of giant sequoia trees and he suddenly felt inspired to write something about um, not just our relationship with trees but the impact that trees have had on us and can mm. have on us. I guess, uh, and, and for anyone who, for just a very, very brief summary of the overstory as well, um, it's basically a loose collection of characters um, who then kind of come together and it's all tree-related. So trees yes. are almost like the overarching. <laughs> trees. Uh, it's a very pro-tree book. It's a pro-tree book. <laughs> um, but it's also like it does speak to that uh, idea because it's because it's funny you then mentioned the legal rights thing and we are jumping around a bit, I guess. But uh, in this essay you mentioned where like should trees have legal rights because it yeah. obviously uh, – because of you mentioning this podcast coming up, I started reading the overstory because I've heard a lot of people ta- say amazing yeah, things Yeah, I'm glad it. you have. And, and it did it did win the Pulitzer in 2019. So, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 so it's been – not that that, not that, yeah. that is the, the only judge of quality, but it's a good sign. It's a good sign. Um, and yeah, it, it mentioned it in there. Also, the idea of giving these non-human, not just animals, human rights, but also trees, because definitely the, the, argue, the argument he gave was like, oh, well, corporations don't talk, but we give them rights. So I guess that's exactly yeah, that's, right. And so, yes. about, and also this kind of notion of why, you know, I mean, where law, for example, is very focused on human rights. Um, we're increasingly, I suppose, focusing on sentience for, for animals, you know, and and as sentient beings, rights for sentient beings. Um, and so Christopher Stone, back in 1972, wrote this groundbreaking essay, which was really saying, um, you know, well, well, why can't trees have rights? Trees are living beings, and they're so incredibly critical to us, but we don't necessarily have to, you know, look at it that way. We could just be guardians and protectors of them in the same way that we would um, other people that don't necessarily have consciousness, you know. Um, and so there's this kind of whole concept of um, the connection between rights and, and conscious-based life, I suppose, and, you know, yeah. how maybe we could reconceive the way in which we do it. And that was in 1972 before really there was a lot of discussion about climate change and the importance of trees as carbon sinks and et cetera. And, and, and so I think, um, you know, it, it was groundbreaking stuff really. And, and we're seeing a lot of that happen, you know, a lot of that sort of sense of um, the importance of trees. I mean, perhaps you heard about the, um, the birthing trees that the um, Indigenous people um, I think it was on the road to Ararat, they were wanting to protect because, you know, on the one hand you had the government saying, oh, we need another lane, we need to expand the highway so people can get to work quicker and, you know, drive cars, which probably are going to emit tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions because we don't have electric cars at, at the moment. And even if we did have electric cars, we don't have electricity that's renewable. Anyway, mm. side point. Um, and... <laughs> So, you know, our imperative is to develop planning laws that, that you know, that, that allow, you know, reduced um, the um, travel time. 
And then there was this gorgeous story of this um, Indigenous elder that had to protect the grandfather tree because these were birthing trees that, that, you know, dating back generations where where children had been born and they were protectors of of, um, Indigenous communities. And so rather than rely on law, she just basically sat in front of it to stop it being cut down. It's, it's a gorgeous story. And, in fact, I've read, I think at the start when I was setting up this new course that I've done, um, I thought I read the overstory and I read that, you know, that which just such a powerful story. And I thought, right, I'm going to start my first topic. Instead of calling it Introduction to Environmental Law, my first topic is called Trees, George. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, you know what? We, we could just change the way we look at it. You know, we can look at yeah. laws relating to trees. And so yeah. when you said to me, um, you know, do you want to do a podcast? I thought, you know what, that's kind of, that's my vibe at the moment. That's what I've been looking at. And, um, you know, I, I think I can connect a lot of what I've been reading to my interest in that at the moment. Well, it sounds like... Um... I'm just going to take a wild stab because it, 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 it was in this early stages, obviously, when you were doing your PhD, um, looking at indigenous communities, and then you read this book, uh, The God of Small Things, which uh, was kind of – it almost seems like – it's weird because I want to say the word bigotry, but it's not exactly bigotry because you're talking about like even groups which almost no one would even consider. You can't be a bigot to trees. <laughs> so maybe that's the wrong <laughs> word there. Yeah. But it's about um, looking at things – Judging things uh, as lesser or separate or not part of the human condition. And it seems like you've taken that from not just human perspective, but even deeper into, um, yeah. Because oh, so, the, the God of Small Things is almost the most basic version because it's as simple as, yeah, humans looking at other humans in the same group almost, but completely separate. And then you're looking at indigenous communities. And, and how naive are we? Because we don't even see how important into humans are like you know how important is it that the children had this wonderful friend to 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 care for them because he played with them every day you know and and how awful and impactful and damaging it was for them to have had him you know aggressively beaten um and then at the and- same time how important are trees to us i mean of course they are we they're our lifeblood we can't live without them we have to value them and we have to um, you know, treat them with respect. And if that means, and I suppose really what Christopher Sturm is getting at in 1972, if that means we have to give them rights, kind of set up this kind of construct where they, they, they operate, you know, to protect them we put them in the paradigm in which we operate, which is rights, entitlements, you know, then, then that's what we have to do. And we can recalibrate things to make sure that we achieve that. Mm. So I guess, uh, and yeah, so I guess this is the part which I'm still uh, trying to, which ties into law in general, really. Um, and even a reflection there of like, oh, yeah, so if you do that, then does that, how much does that change versus how much is it going that direction already or whatever? But also just how much law is a reflection of, it's not as, whatever the law might be saying, it's actually always just a reflection of what's happening there on the ground in, in a sense, if you yeah. know what I mean. Um, so something like... Uh, because I haven't read the books, so I haven't seen how the characters view it themselves. But do they end up 
actually taking on some of this bigotry themselves? Do they end up thinking that maybe they are better in some ways or they, they end up being indoctrinated into that attitude or whether no, that's, and, and that's the I natural that's, state of being? I think they're just very they're highly traumatised and it sort of atomizes their family. And, um, and I think that that bigotry, which they weren't entirely aware of because they had a level of freedom, because, of course, they were a higher caste, um, you know, meant that they were perhaps not as aware of, of maybe, and it's interesting, and I'm just sort of stream of consciousness right now, but I'm just sort yeah, of thinking maybe <laughs> because <laughs> you're more aware of it if you're from the lower caste, aren't you? You're far more aware. Oh, always. Uh, always. And so, you know. That's the depth, like that's what privilege is. Because <laughs> yeah, in where you right. don't know that you have it. You don't know you have it. It's so true. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's, the more you think about this book, the, the more it comes out, I guess, you know, that you think that of course, they had no idea. They were, they were young, they were privileged, they had freedoms, they had no idea. And, and so, but they did looking back. And the trauma of realising that, that sort of indoctrination and that, and yeah, that bigotry and, and that discrimination stayed with them their whole lives and it destroyed their, their childhood really. At least like, yeah, in terms of... Yeah, looking back on it as well. So is that something which um, did you have any, like, I guess, to go f- to look for just some more connections there? Um, and it also seems to suit with what you're, you've gone into. Um, was that something you experienced at all? You had any insight into or were you always like from uh, in your own life? Yeah, were you like in, in a privileged position or were you kind of seeing that bigotry happening around you somewhere? No, I, well, look, first of all, I'll say this, um, that I've, I am in a privileged position because I have – you know, I've, I'm well educated, and I have a responsibility to try and, you know, educate other people. You know, that's that's my that's my public responsibility. Academics, you know, that's what they do. They research and they teach, and um, that is my responsibility. But my background is definitely not privileged. I went to a state school. I worked really hard. I remember telling my um, careers advisor that I wanted to do law um, and that was probably because I watched some stupid show, you know, what what would it have been back then, LA Law or something. I probably had no idea. And he said to me, Samantha, you haven't got a hope in hell of doing law. And, and you know what, George, <laughs> maybe this is my character, that was the motivation that I needed. I thought, right. <laughs> That's it. I went home and I said to mum, because I didn't even know that I wanted to do law. I just said it. It was something that I'd probably seen on the television or something. And um, I said, I'm going to do law. Now I am going to do law. And that I can literally remember thinking, um, because, you know, we were extremely working class. Um, You know, I never really thought about academic aspirations. Um, But then I think... I started to think, oh, right, you know, I mean, I'm, I never say that I've been discriminated against, never put myself in, in that position, but I would say that um, I do understand um, the difference between, um, I suppose, having privileges associated with wealth and, and not. Um, and mm. so um, for me it was very important to um, give it a go. And you know what? I, I was able to do that. Because of Gough Whitlam, right? I, he he made education free, and so I worked really hard 
you know, um, we didn't have a desk. I had my mum's old sewing machine. <laughs> we didn't have a computer. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm old. And we, we yeah. you know, I used to handwrite my papers and things. And, and um, I really wanted to get into Melbourne Uni, but I was two marks off. And, and I got into Monash and I thought the world had ended. <laughs> Monash would kill me for saying that now. I know. That's and, great. Um, and then, you know, and then when I went, I can remember, okay, when I went to enrol, um, one of the administrators said, oh, you know, that's quite a good result from that school. <laughs> so that was like, and, and at the time, and everyone was in a group at law school when I went, everyone was in a group from a private school hmm. except for me. So there were a couple of outliers, a couple of crazy ones, and that was me and a couple of other girls from Ballarat High and, you know, we were just. Yeah. And, and also yeah, us, yeah. I think, you know, we didn't, we just were so happy. I was so happy to be there that um, worked pretty hard um, and um, finished my degree and then went to work in a law firm and hated it. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm. And, and especially back a, a few years ago, that would have been probably, yeah, a lot of reasons why that would be the case. Oh, yes, George. I can tell you there was, you know, gender issues and it was just a nightmare. It was actually a really difficult place to work. It's quite toxic. Um, and, mm. and I'm sure that, that it's changed a little bit, but it's still not necessarily what what law graduates expect. But the change that's happened now, I think, is that there are so many different things you can do now, you know, and perhaps. Back then, it was kind of you know well that's your your end point. You you go off and you work in a in a firm, or once you've done that, after a couple of years, you go to the bar. And um, so I just remember my my um, professor saying, "Do you want to come back and do some tutoring?" And that was the start of it. You know, I just went back, right. enrolled in a master's, and went from there. You found the avenue which could still appeal to you whilst that whilst not dealing with that kind of environment you mentioned. Um, it's interesting you're saying this because, like, as in, I, straight away I think, um, I, I, I'll be honest, my my uh, I have an obsession with. I, I'm almost a class reductionist in some ways, as that's how I kind of view the world. Um, as in, that's the ultimate basis of I think most things can boil down to the, it, it's there's still other things involved, but so much of it can boil down to, I think the class-based analysis more so than almost any other way. Yeah. Um, so when you say your background and especially heightening it by actually going into these universities where you would be surrounded by private school people who are kind of there, you probably would have felt that um, <laughs> in a weird way. And I'm not saying it in a negative way or anything, but like almost with your read of uh, a God of small things almost sounds like you're, you're seeing that more because you're coming from that position of that lower caste thing. You're absolutely, appreciating that. Absolutely. Difference. No, George, that's right. That's exactly where I'm coming from. And you're right. That's, that is the lens that I put on it because that's the lens I have, you know, and that's the lens I, I had. And, and, you know, I've, I've, I suppose, done a few more things now for a long time I felt like I had to work harder than everybody else because um, I'm not entirely sure that I deserve to be there you know and um, I tell you know and I've done a lot of things one of the things that that I loved and and you know Americans are amazing people especially American academics and I was doing some work on um, uh, coal seam gas in New South Wales and you know all of the environmental issues and um, 
the um, Harvard Environmental Policy Unit asked me to come over and give a, a presentation over there. All right. And, um, At Harvard, not too bad. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't too bad. Exactly. I was really happy. And so I asked whether I could go and it turned out that another professor, a male professor, was going to Harvard to give a presentation as well at a similar time. And they said, oh, well, actually, no, we don't have the budget. We've already authorised, you know, this this person to go. And so I, you know, I contacted Harvard. And, that, you know, I feel like sometimes they were like a decade ahead of us and they said, well, what, what, who is this person? How come, how come he can go and you can't? And they said... You've got to go and ask your, your dean and, and make sure that that's, you know, that you've got parity there, that there's not discrimination. And, and I thought, gosh, I hadn't even thought of it that way. You know, I've just been looking at it as a funding thing. And um, anyway, then um, I went back and I said, look, can I go? And um, they said, look, we need a formal invitation. I said, well, I've got a, an email invitation. That's pretty good. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we need a written invitation. Like this gives you an idea of what, you know, I mean, I still think there are issues for females in, in, in all sorts of ways. And I thought, oh, okay, right, you know, and so I, I said to the um, organisers at Harvard, look, they need a, a written invitation. And they said, fine. And then arrived in, it was, it was actually, they sent me this on parchment paper and it, and it was framed. <laughs> That was That's just, hilarious. And it was so good. It really inspired me, George, because I thought, you know what, people are interested in some of the things, you know, that I might have to say. And um, I think that that that's true for so many people, you know, who who feel like perhaps, I don't know, like you say, you, you reduce a lot to class and it can, can make you less, uh, more inhibited perhaps in terms of what you've got to offer um, and, um I think it's important to try and sort of change those perspectives a little bit. I think it is changing. That's kind of the hope, right? I mean, that it's, uh, I guess the first the first step is knowing you've got a problem, which I think everyone's getting more aware of that the as first we go. knowing you've got a problem, but also like, you know, for example, I, I often think with students when when you hear nothing, you know, it's that whole sort of sense of thinking, oh, I've got nothing to say, you know, they won't be interested. But, in fact, that's exactly what I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear what, what students have to think about, and what, you know, what their thoughts are. And it might be they have no thoughts because they've not read any of the cases and, or any of the materials. I get that. But there, I'm sure that there's a cohort out there that, that have and that, you know, just kind of want to express themselves. And I think... You know, you can. It, it takes a while to perhaps get to that point. But to get back to the book, um, I think that you're right. I think that um, the the perspective of coming from a less privileged position um, and perhaps having some innocence associated with that really resonated with me when I went to university. Mm. Um, and I, I guess one more thing, like we, like I said, I go forever with this stuff. I do find it so fascinating. But uh, the the fact that uh, the book itself and this and this will tie into the other stuff as well. But the fact that it's based on uh, it's in India, so you're seeing that other culture. So you, it's probably yeah. like giving that extra layer. 
Was yeah. was other cultures, including the indigenous culture here, which shouldn't be other, but it is because of how Australia works. Yeah. Was that something that always interested you as well? Or was that a late thing just because of another example of bigotry? Or yeah, how how did that kind of come That's about? That's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that question. And and yeah, absolutely. It's always interested me, you know. Um and um yeah, I mean the the, the use of the word other, I agree with you, you know. Um just um difference, you know. Um, and I suppose because it's not, I haven't been different, but I feel like I've generally been an outlier. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and so, and that's because, let's face it, you were talking about everything being reduced by class. I mean, a lot of Australian society is defined that way. And so I haven't necessarily fitted the mould. And um, so I haven't really been bothered with all of that, Right. I just think, oh, whatever. And then what intrigues me, definitely different cultures and different ways of looking at things and um, different ideas, you know, and and I I absolutely love a lot of um, the stories and um, depictions from, you know, um, Indigenous culture. It's just fascinating. But also Indian culture, amazing, so multi-layered, the food, I love the I love food. <laughs> um, but, but also, you know, I think there's a little bit of that comes through the book, you know, that all those textures of, of um, you know, different ways of, of living, it's just the way in which the day, you know, you've got afternoon naps and different temperatures and, you know, different things that you do. I'm that, Greek. I'm a big believer in an afternoon nap. Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I wish. I wish. I probably do have an afternoon nap sometimes in in some of my classes. I'm into that now. And you're the one teaching. (laughs) (laughs) It's impressive. Um, no, I guess, yeah, well, I guess, especially I think um, it's interesting. You don't fall to the trap of obviously Orientalism or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, because of the Asian cultures especially, they're just more different to Western society. So when you look at something like India, it's it's very different and it's very rich in its difference. It's got very long history of difference, which it really applies has. almost it's, everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful country and, and um, beautiful people and, and, yeah, very rich in its history and, and um, you know, fascinating really. Because, you know, can, in many ways you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's a bit – often your lived experience you think is a bit boring because you're living it. So you kind of want – it's very interesting to look at difference and, and to try and sort of see where it evolved from. And you were talking about being fascinated by history because, you know, it's informed so much by by – historical civilizations and events that have happened and reactions to those events and so on. Mm. So that and, uh, yeah, and how much that reflects it. So I guess and uh, uh, to, t- to, t- to bring it circle again, so to, to that initial point, and this is where like I can almost be cynical in some ways, but also maybe I, it's – it's impossible to say where, like, what's natural for humans and what's not natural for humans because of how moldable we are depending on the culture we're in. But how much of, like, even the laws you look at and these issues you see there with this caste system, how much that seems to be a tribal basic attitude of the human condition? So, in some ways, it's not artificial because it is playing to some of our more base instincts, if you know yeah, what I mean. I do. That's exactly what I think about that book. I think that it is playing on our base instincts it's, it is very tribal and you know it's this kind of whole concept of i'm better than you you know do we want to say that or, or 
even, maybe even better isn't the right word. I'm, I'm, I'm different to you, and um, you know, maybe value. I have, I have, you know, superior value or something like that. that there's a lot of that going on, and it, and it, you know, it's it's completely infiltrates our history. Um, so colonialism and imperialism, of course, is is, is steeped in all of that. You know mm. that that. British ways of doing things are the superior way of doing things, and therefore British people are superior people. And um, I think, uh, and 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 colonists, therefore, you know, we come over from the motherland, and we need to follow what the motherland has always been doing because that's the way things are done. And now we see. I was talking to um, uh, an, a conservationist and um, ecologist on the weekend. Um, and she was saying that um, we're changing the way in which we deal with bushfires because we've always thought that bushfire management was just about doing burn-offs. But Indigenous people used to do what's called mosaic burn-offs where they'd burn little tiny areas. We didn't want to do that because we had private property and private owners didn't want little little areas of their property being burned. Mm. But, in fact, burning that undergrowth is critical um, to stop these enormous fires and also to ensure that animals that are being burned in these horrific bushfires have little places to go because it sort of creates these um, little pockets. Yeah, little pockets where they can hide. And and so we're only now learning that. So 2000 and what are we, 2021 and the the, the – fallout from the 2019 catastrophic fires, we're thinking, oh, maybe we should take on board some of the Indigenous practices, you know. And and I, mean, and I think yeah. that kind of concept of, of, of looking outside of ourselves is, is incredibly important um, for our future welfare. And I guess, like, uh, the, the other side with that, uh, yeah, because even you mentioned a few things, because firstly... Uh, this is some ominous foreshadowing for potentially, based on what the news is saying of the fires that are happening in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm very concerned about what's coming this, yeah. this summer. Come tune in this summer for horrific yeah. more bushfires. Yeah. Um, but uh, before that, you mentioned uh, yeah, the, 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 the act of looking at someone as less um, and that how that's ingrained in uh, – it's a base instinct, I guess. Yeah. But I also look at almost – again, to tie it into property law, I guess, it's almost like protecting ourselves. So we build up these fences where you're outside of it and we're yeah. inside of it because we're protecting ourselves, yeah. which ties in very much with – that's the root of a lot of – I feel like so it's I almost – yes, bigotry is bad and I'm not trying to justify it at all in that sense, but I do understand it in terms of like where it comes from because it's almost like – we start off just protecting ourselves and then slowly over time we feel bad or maybe we're protecting ourselves from these groups and with our family or whatever, our children, and then that slowly peters out into us def- like making it natural law, making us feel better about ourselves by having done this first step. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I know that's kind and of that, how No, no, that's you- right. I mean, it's sort of this kind of Darwinian perspective that, you know, um, it's, it's um, I suppose that you've, got this biological instinct to to look after yourself and you know whoever's the toughest will survive but in actual fact i mean that that first of all i don't necessarily think that's what that is darwinian um i think that that it's far more nuanced and evolved than that and secondly Mm. um to survive we have to work together so we have to kind of start thinking um about you know 
looking at different ways of doing things and, and, and seeing how, how they could improve what we're doing now. Um, but that's not necessarily intuitive because exactly because we have con- constructed these and we do kind of go back to these kind of base principles of thinking, oh, well, you know, the way I do things is the best way, you know, that I know what I'm doing, um, I understand. So a gas-led recovery is the best way to deal with, with COVID. <laughs> we know what we're doing. We really don't need advice from anyone else. And yet, of yeah, course, that's... the implications of that are profound for everybody. No one wants mm. to get beyond two degrees, the horror. And and um, so why not open up the debate and work out, you know, what's the best way moving forward? Because really it's just about how can we create energy and, you know, reduce emissions and reduce environmental. I mean, I say as if it's simple, but <laughs> but it's <laughs> policy should be more informed by, I think, you know, more uh, a broader range of groups. It's very insular and maybe that reflects our tribal perspectives. Mm. I mean, just the it's power who holds the power that they'll make everything well, else yeah, defined right. how they it's want it power to. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Um, but, um, yeah. I mean, I think to come back to the book, um, I, I think that it does really reflect, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, that, that we do often feel that way. Um, and, and it's something, is it, is it learnt behavior, you know, is, and I think that's what she's getting at, you know, these girls were able to run free. They weren't constrained and taught not to talk to the lower caste. Um, and then they had this trauma when when the system kind of caught up with them. Um, you know, and so I suppose can we ever really get away from it? Mm. And then, yeah, and how it puts a positive I, I we can as long as things advance i guess in a sense as long as we don't slide well, back i know education it, education that's it if education you can't help and it. i mean it, it's playing out with covid too of course because you know you've got all these people that are vaccinated and unvaccinated and the ones that believe it's all a big myth and the ones that don't and like all of the different groups with all of their firm perspectives on what's right you know there's a bit of tribalism in all of that as well oh yeah hundred uh, percent, and obviously the new media landscape doesn't is designed specifically to heighten that tribalism rather than to lessen it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's literally that's its purpose. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, look, we've jumped around a lot, but I think we've got a nice. I should call it off there before we go on forever. Okay. Um, so, thank you very much for being on the show. That was really fun. Um, is there any? This usually I have performers on who I might say this, but is there anywhere anyone can reach or look into your stuff or your work? Sure. Just, I mean, I've got, you know, you can just go to Deakin Law School and, and look me up. Um, uh, and I don't really, I'm not really a big performer on social media, but um, I've done a quite a lot of papers on the conversation if you're interested in the sort of work that I do. Oh, um, that's, uh, that is good, yeah. Yeah. So. I can, okay, um, cool. I'll, I'll put a link to the maybe some of that in the description anyway. But, yes, thank you very much again. Absolutely. Samantha Hepburn, thank you for being on. Loved it. Thank you very much, George. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sanspants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. 
Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.